Well, it was a few days before Christmas, and here's another episode of the Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. If you want more information about that company, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. My co-hosts tonight are Brad and Kerry Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. If you want more information about their company, check out MuskieMayhemTackle.com. And our guest tonight is going to be Steve Hiding. He's currently the managing editor of Muskie Hunter Magazine. He's also written a handful of books. You can also check out the University of Esox, he's in he's in charge with that too. He's also the lead instructor for the Nicolay College Muskie Seminar. And this one's gonna be the third annual. And we'll get to Steve here shortly. So if you're and the topic tonight is going to be how to break down new water. Carrie, Brad, and I all discussed it, and we thought that the last few episodes were maybe a little light on knowledge to help people catch more muskies. So in an effort to do that, we decided that we're, we're just going to do one topic with Steve because Steve has a wealth of knowledge and as as evident by his accolades that he has, if you ever check out Steve Hiding, he's pretty much done everything in the musky world and we're grateful to have him on. Brad, Kerry, how are you guys doing today? Doing good, Jeff. Looking forward to the podcast tonight. And like you said, I, I think, uh, you know, our roots in this whole thought process of doing this podcast was to help people help them benefit from what we're spewing I guess if you will and then uh, trying to give people some uh, some tips and pointers out there for any level angler but um, I think we're getting back to our roots that's what we wanted to do with this podcast and I think that's where we're going now right I mean sometimes we're going to get off topic a little bit we were certainly grateful to have James Linder take some time out of his out of his day to talk, you know, just fishing with us. But it wasn't one of those episodes that was packed with fishing knowledge and tips that you were going to help catch a lot of fish with. Certainly, we we plan to have James on again, as well as some of the other uh, people in his team, Al and Jeremy Smith. I know we had talked about those too, and hopefully, we get to dive more into some of the tips and tactics with that. But for this episode, that's what it's going to be. It's going to be just talking about new water, where to start, what depths, how we go about breaking down new water, baits, big water, small water. We're going to hopefully catch it all. That's for sure, Jeff. I, you know, as well, the listeners should basically share with us, you know, if there's a topic out there that we haven't hit, shoot it at us and, and we'd be happy to, uh, to try to tackle it. Certainly. So let's do a couple other housekeeping items. We're two days before Christmas. This is the 23rd of of December and at this point if you missed out on getting a gift for somebody musky related we're probably not going to be able to get it to you so your best bet would be to go gift card I know that if you go to Team Rhino Outdoors you can order gift cards right from your phone right from your laptop whatever and all you have to do is just get them sent you can you can check out it'll literally send you out a gift card within a minute and you can either email, forward that email on to whoever you're going to give the gift to, or you just need a printer and you can print it off and put it in a card. So, Carrie, why don't you talk? I think you guys have a similar setup on that, too. I believe we have the exact same setup. So, yeah, you can just go to muskymayhemtackle.com, order the gift card, check out. It gets emailed directly to you, just like Jeff talked about. Obviously, if you want products from Muskie Mayhem Tackle and Team Rhino Outdoors, we can certainly get them out. There's a chance we can try to ship them to you, but the likelihood that you'll get them before Christmas is very slim at this point. I would say it's like 
2%. So anyways, the other housekeeping item we have is coming up pretty soon is the Ohio Muskie show. I know that Team Rhino Outdoors will not be there this year, but Muskie Mayhem Tackle is available. Why don't you guys talk about where you can get products at the Ohio show for you guys? Yeah, I believe, uh, I believe Thorn Brothers will be there with some of our product, but um, as well as John Betty. And uh, one of the neat things this year, John Betty has done a very good job. Some of these shows that are so far away from us and, and what have you, um, we'll ship him some product. He has it available in his booth. And the neat thing is, is this year we, uh, we had Jason Quintano join forces with us on our pro staff, and he really did a bang-up job this whole season with uh, catching a ton of different fish on some of our products. And I know one of the big ones for him this year was the single girl, and I believe uh, John will have single girls in his booth based upon what Jason Quintano shared. So, Yep, so if you... Want to find us in Ohio? Brad and I will not be there, but you can go to the Stealth Tackle booth and you will find Musky Mayhem products. And, and actually, it's a lot of Jason custom colors is what will be there. So a few other things, but a good selection of Jason's Jason's custom colors that he, he did really light them up this year with. His go-to stuff. And then if you actually want to you know, be at a show that we're going to be at. It's the Chicago Muskie Expo Pheasant Run. It'll be January 17th, 18th, and 19th. And I know Brad and I will be there, but Carrie's still on the fence. So what we need you to do is just send emails to Muskie Mayhem Tackle demanding that Carrie shows up at the show and that you want autographs from her at the show. And then maybe we can get Carrie to decide to come. <laughs> Somebody has to work, Jeff. Nonsense. That work stuff's <laughs> overrated. I don't disagree, but nothing gets done if I leave the building. So That's true, because Brad can be there and nothing's going to get done anyways. Some days. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a bad thing? I mean, that you show up at the shop all day long and get nothing done? It's not bad for me, because I'd say like 10% of the time you talk to me on the phone. So. <laughs> <laughs> The other 90%, yeah. I don't know who, I don't know what you're doing. Answering fan mail probably too. Uh, something like that. You know, you're right. During the fishing and hunting season, I'm probably not in the shop as much as I should be. Probably. Um, but it's that time of the year again, you know, we're in December and <laughs> things kind of fall in place and uh, now it's time to work in the shop again. That's for sure. Well, much like you, I'm sure people will talk to you in, in December and they think that that's your slow time of the year. And much like Jim, James Linder had talked on the last episode, that's not the slow time of the year for me anymore. We have a, like a short window in November where it's kind of slow. But then for me and my wife and kids, we're, we're in the shop now quite a bit getting ready to go to these expos. Yeah, we still haven't even pulled our trailer apart for looking at shows uh definitely started working on some product for the shows but you know for us we're ramping up a lot of the box stores do a lot of uh initial orders and so we're kind of buried in regular routine work at this point in the year so you know it, it's always nice to come into fall and things kind of slow down a little bit but ultimately you know falls have become shorter and shorter for whatever reason especially um, for me yeah not so much for brad but it, it was pretty short this year for Terry. 
Well, it was because you shot a big deer right away, so then you weren't in the woods as much. Otherwise, I know that I'd be getting pictures probably halfway through December yet of you in a tree stand. I'm still contemplating that, but it's cold out. It is. It sucks. <laughs> Winter is upon us. It's a fact. Well, enough BS from Muskie Mayhem Tackle and Team Rhino Outdoors tonight. What do you guys think? Should we give Steve a call and talk about breaking down new muskie water? Sounds good. Let's jump into it, Jeff. All right, let's get after it. All right, our guest now is Steve Hiding. He's with Muskie Hunter Magazine and a bunch of other uh, muskie affiliates. We'll, we'll, uh, we talked about those earlier in the podcast, and we'll give Steve a chance to talk all about the different adventures that he has going on. But Steve, today the topic is going to be how to break down new water for muskie fishermen. We're trying to get back to the educational side of the Backlash podcast. For the last few, we've kind of done just some... Uh, you know, talking back and forth, fishing related, but we haven't dive, you know, dove specifically into educational. And today we want to focus strictly on educational. But before we get to educational, why don't you kind of talk a little bit about background with Steve Hiding, where you came from, kind of what you got going on? <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk about myself, about myself in the third person, but um, I've been with Muskie Hunter for 25 years now. And uh, before that, I had guided and work for other magazines and it's just been a natural is it you always say you should have a job that you enjoy and so that's kind of what i sought out here so used to be in newspapers and got into magazines and my my passion was muskies and here i am short and sweet right brad yeah that's all right short and sweet's good are you originally from that monaco area steve no i grew up in west bend wisconsin which is north of milwaukee and uh my grandparents had a place in northern Wisconsin, and I tried to finagle as much time as I possibly could when I was a kid there. And they didn't have muskies in the lake. I always wanted my grandfather, I tried to talk my grandfather into taking me muskie fishing. I don't know why I wanted to fish muskies, but uh, hey, I liked to fish for pike back then, and I figured muskies were like the next level. My grandfather, I finally pressed him a little bit on it and you know, why he wouldn't take me muskie fishing, and he said, because they're no darn good to eat. And, you know, he raised a family during the Depression, and I guess I can't argue with that bit of logic. But uh, I could I, I, I didn't start musky fishing until I was 18 and had wheels and uh, an opportunity to get out. That's a pretty common story, actually, Steve. It's kind of funny. Carrie's grandfather said the same thing to her. You know, it, the musky bug is something that, uh, I don't know, it's a unique individual that fishes muskies, I think, all the way around. And once it hits you... It's uh, I don't know what you'd call it, a poison. Um, it's a definitely an addiction, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if I would call it unique individuals outside. I think I'd probably border, or I, I'd choose crazy would probably be the right term. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. It takes a unique individual, though. You know, one of the things that I find really interesting, you know, when we're visiting with people at shows and, and what have you, and it's I know it's a common interest that we share as well, Steve, it seems like archery hunters are generally musky fishermen and vice versa. And I think that kind of ties together a little bit, but uh, no, it's, it's interesting. I think uh, us as musky anglers, we definitely like to try to pay attention to the detail. And uh, I think that's a big part of it. And I know today what we're going to talk about is approaching a new body of water and kind of what Steve Hiding does with that, as well as what Jeff and I have for opinions as well. So I don't know. Where do you want to go, Jeff? I think first off, we should talk about 
anything that he does, like if you're going to approach a new body of water, is there anything, is there any like homework that you do off the water before you even head out to the water? Absolutely. You got to start with a map. You got to start somewhere in that map. You know, the first time you're lying, laying eyes on that lake is usually typically, or usually through a map. And that is your Bible and that's your starting point. And until you change it, that's what you got. Typically, I will, you know, get the map, whether it's from the DNR or from fishing hotspots or whomever. And then I'm going to spend some time looking at satellite imagery. And that alone right there can save you so much time in the water because if the satellite imagery was taken, you know, there's a couple ifs involved. But if it was a sunny day and if the water's clear, you can often see a lot of the reefs exactly how they lay out before you even hit the water. And you can lay that onto you can lay that onto your map and then I try to figure out where the boat landing is. And here in northern Wisconsin where I've got so many different lakes at my disposal you know within oh gosh uh, probably an hour's drive i've probably got 300 muskie lakes here you know ranging from you know 50 acres to you know 4,000. i'll go drive you know during the off season you know usually like you know what's the what's the what the uh, lakes open up i'll go take a look at the boat launch and just make sure that i can get my ranger into it just see if there's any problems i may run into and you know, I'll get all that marked before I even start to think about putting my water or my boat on the water and taking a look at the lake. When you say paper maps, um, I would agree with that. I think it's easier to look at a piece of paper when you're sitting in your office, your house, whatever it might be. Where does that shift take you then when you, you start using your GPS, Steve? Well, so many of our uh, electronics nowadays, you know, have mapping capabilities. You know, my hummingbird is fantastic you know they, they say that the electronics nowadays are better than what they had on fighter jets during the vietnam war and i probably had I, I have no reason to doubt that but having that physical map on your lap at least for me and, and i learned you know if we go back in time too much time i learned to fish lakes by having a paper map it wasn't a matter of uh you know having a, a, a gps chip that i could just look at and go out and, you know, I'd look at that paper map and I'd, I'd mark the spots that on that map that look good to me on the map and, and understand there is no map out there that has everything that you're going to encounter out there, but I'll mark what looks good to me before I even get out there. And then of course, you know, getting, making sure, making sure the lake map is on your chip is very, very handy. But again, changing things up is there. You're going to have to, you know, tailor things or customize it to what you're running into you know once i get the boat in the water i'm going to lay a jeep you know a waypoint right on the at the boat launch because you know when you're out away from the boat launch sometimes you come in and you know, maybe it's a uh, little dark and uh, you know trees and that different angle you may not be able to even see the boat launch and i did that on big saint the first big saint Germain lake here in Miles county the first time i ever fished i went out night fishing there i spent two hours trying to find the boat launch when i came in so that's kind of been like uh, my catch-all every time i go to a lake is mark the boat launch to start with but anyway i think i'm probably getting ahead of myself here so go ahead guys well one of the things that you know you're exactly right you mentioned that uh these map cards paper maps both they're not going to have every detail and i there's some things that I do sometimes, Steve, when I first hit the water and say I'm on a new body of water. Um, and I did some of this this past summer. 
I'm going to use my sonar as well as my map card. Um, I run two units in my boat, so it's a little easier, but, you know, split screen will work as well. And what I'll do is I'll start dropping some of those waypoints on those key structures. Maybe it's a hard break or maybe it's a weed bed. And I think side imaging has definitely improved that because you can always kind of relate with the side imaging that, uh, hey, there is that break. Or, hey, there is that weed line, a rock pile, what have you. But I'll start dropping uh, waypoints as I'm driving around, checking out new structures that I can go back at a later point and fish. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, side imaging. <laughs> oh, gosh. You know, that's been around since 2005, I believe it was, when Humphrey came out with that. And if if it's not working, and my boat was uh, rigged last year without a key component and the first time I put the boat on the water without my side imaging, I felt flying. I mean, good gosh, I, I learned to fish without it. And then with, when I didn't have it last year, I felt blind, which was, I found kind of, kind of funny. And, uh, I had to re re-examine myself a little bit. I thought, you know, how much of a crutch is this for you, Steve? But anyway, with a smaller lake, like we have here in, in Northern Wisconsin, what I'll do very often is I'll go and find the weed edge. And, you know, some lakes, don't have weed edge depending on rusty crayfish and the bottom composition that sort of thing so i'll try to find the weed edge or the the, the first break line you know whatever that is and if that weed edge is you know 10 or 12 feet i'm going to put my boat in 10 or 12 feet turn on my side imaging and then i'm just going to start driving and i'll only have that side imaging shooting to one side typically toward the shore side and i'll just start driving the lake and you can drive the perimeter of a lake you know you can take a thousand acre lake and do it in three hours and as i'm doing that and i'm finding things on side imaging be it a fish crib a rock pile a long point a weed edge i will first lay waypoints as i'm doing it but often i'll just shut my boat down and lay it down on the paper map too so i can kind of see it you know right there as i'm going along but you'll lay the waypoints onto my map onto my electronics and then, like I said, you can do a thousand acre lake in about three hours or so. And you have, right now, you have a customized map that's way better than any perch. Then after driving the perimeter, I'm going to go and buzz across open water a few times, look for things that might be marked on the paper map, you know, say like a hump or a rock pile or whatever out in the middle. And, you know, I'll, I'll go find it. I'll drive over it. I'll drive around it and I'll map it all and look for cribs, look for things, you know, irregularities that are on, you know, that are out there, get them marked, you know, get them waypointed onto my GPS, get them marked on my paper map. And, you know, I'll, I'll do that for, you know, I'll spend that those couple hours before I even start fishing because, Hey, already I know more about the lake than I will. If I spent, if I'd gone there for a week and just started fishing, it takes, you know, you, you're only going to learn it, you know, at a, at a cast distance at a time. Whereas I can go and drive it, and all of a sudden I've got this thousand acre lake just dialed in before I even start fishing it. And I think that's so cool. And that's, uh, you know, a lot of the tournament fishermen are starting to do that too, where you're hearing about that. You know, guys used to talk about tournament fishing. They'd go and they'd pre fish without hooks in their face, which I think is just hogwash. You might as well catch the fish because, I mean, if you burn it today, it doesn't mean it was going to bite during the tournament. But, you know, they'll, you know, a lot of the tournament, a lot of the better tournament fishermen today, are just going out and using their electronics and seeing what they can find and marking it on their electronics as opposed to fishing, which has been very successful for a number of them. 
Yeah, I find that interesting. You know, one of the things I know it sounds like you're running Humminbird. Have you played with the Auto Chart Live at all, Steve? I have. If I spent more time on some of the lakes up here than I do, it would be incredible what you have. I've got a buddy that, you know, he, he's got a, a private lake in his backyard of his cabin up here, and there is no good map of that lake. And he's gone and just run auto chart while he's fishing this lake, and it's incredible what he's got. And it's, it's remarkable how much detail or how much bottom diversity is to this lake for, you know, 100-acre lake or whatever it is. And it just kind of tells me what we probably are missing with the larger lakes if you don't run auto chart. And, you know, with my job, I'm running all over. You know, I'm, you know I've, fit, I've, I've caught muskies, you know, all the way from in the northernmost muskie lake in the world in Ontario as to as far south as uh, Kentucky. And I just don't have the time to spend that much time on one lake to, you know, fully get the benefits of auto charts, but it is remarkable, you know, a very remarkable feature that's available there. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible to say the least. I, I've played with it briefly. One of the things where I've, I've found it's very useful for me is, as we said in the very beginning of this, you know, some of the map cards, they're not totally right. And I kind of <laughs> like that they're not totally right because they're some of my best favorite spots. You know, running Auto Chart Live enables me to basically put that map together. So at least it's right on my unit. Oh, yeah. And yeah, <laughs> so far as the things that aren't on, on, on chips, a lot of the chips that are out there, the maps that they've got are nothing more than the paper map now on a chip and they just were transposed onto a chip or however they transferred the the art or whatever to the chip and it may not be that way with some of the larger lakes some of the more popular lakes but a lot of the smaller ones are and you know I, i've got some buddies who put out map books and there's a lake up by mercer which is about 45 minutes north of here and you know lots, lots of cool dark water lakes up by mercer and there's there's a reef that sticks out of the water for god's sakes in a low water year Otherwise, it's six or eight inches underneath the surface, and they don't even have it on the map. And of course, the the map charts don't, or the, the mapping chips don't have it either because it's not on the paper map. So um, it's something you very easily could hit, yet it's not on any map. And like you said, if you find those spots, it's always good to find them before you hit them. But those spots too can really yield some good fishing because not everybody knows about them. You know, one of the th systems that I've always used in my boat is if I'm ro marking rocks, I have a certain icon that I choose to use, or maybe it's a dangerous point where, you know, you were just talking about that reef being at eight inches below the surface that you could hit with your boat. I'd put a skull and crossbones on that, you know. Um, <laughs> I consider those things boat killers, so I put a skull and crossbones there too. It, it, if I see them, I avoid them. I fish them, but I, I avoid them when I'm running. But anyway, I, I apologize for interrupting. No, no, I think I think it's funny because, you know, I get the opportunity to jump in several boats a year, and I know you do as well. And without communication between anglers, it's pretty funny how many people use a skull and crossbone on high reefs. <laughs> but I'll use one for weeds. I'll use uh, one for rocks. And the neat thing about that is, is that, you know, you really don't have to like concentrate at your screen. You can relate what that structure is immediately just based upon your waypoints. Yeah, just instant, instant glance, you know what's there. So maybe we should shift gears. Now we're going to start fishing. 
we've talked about the map cards. We've talked about the body of water. We're approaching it that way. How, how are you going to start approaching that in a fishing atmosphere? Well, I want to start, I want to fish as fast as possible, given the conditions. And, you know, I don't know, too many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I wrote an article for Muskie Hunter, you know, called From Fast to Finesse, basically a progression of lures and presentations that I'll use. And I'm going to start with a bucktail if the conditions are right. Say it's the summer, it's cloudy, I got some wind. You know, I'm going to probably start with a bucktail. But say if today is is over or is is cool, sunny, you know, the kind of stuff where you know you're probably not going to catch much. I'm also going to start there. I'm not going to start with a bucktail. I'm probably going to start with a minnow bait because I'm expecting those fish to need to be triggered to bite. And yeah, I got to fish a little bit more slowly. And that's probably not the kind of day to fish in new water though, because you're not going to get a full idea of what's available in that lake or those spots if you have to fish slowly and you have to try to finesse the fish to bite. But I always try to start fishing as fast as conditions warrant. You know, And, and if it's in the summer, it's going to be a bucktail to start with. It's going to be a high riding one. You know, say one of your cowgirls, anything with a Colorado blade that's going to run up high, something I can fish fast. And maybe the next person in the boat's going to be running something that runs a little bit deeper in the water column you know, say a musky killer or, you know, a willow-bladed bucktail, something like that, that fish doesn't have to come up so far to eat. And he still might grab it on a, on a fast retrieve, but if he's not as enthused about biting, he may go for that bait. And then the third fish or third person in the boat is going to be fishing either middle bait or top water. And we're going to try and cover water, try and contact fish, try and figure out the pattern as quickly as we possibly can. Why don't we start out uh, seasonally? Springtime, you drove around the lake, you checked it all out. It's early season yet. What What's the primary structure that you're looking for early season? Okay, early season, I'm going to look for the spots where a muskie or the muskies are considering spawning. You know, if it's, if it's up here, you know, it, we're looking at weedy bays, uh, incoming streams, typically on the northern side of the lake where they get the most direct sunlight and it's going to be warmer. And I'm going to try to, you know, have that, that all mapped out in advance. I'm going to look you know, for the warmest water and look for cover or structure there. And uh, it depends on when the season, what the conditions are when the season opens. You know, here in northern Wisconsin, our season opens on Memorial Day weekend, that's Saturday. And I'm going to, you know, if, if it's been a nice warm spring and the fish are done spawning, they probably are in the transition zones, which are, you know, like the trees and the shorelines and the points and that that are outside of the spawning bays. But if it's been cool, they're going to be probably right up in the spawning bays, and it's going to be a matter of trying to be there when they want to bite. You know, you're going to go fish it in the morning. You might go through. Maybe you see a lazy follow, and that's all you see. You come back a couple hours later, try that again. Maybe there's a couple of fish there. Maybe in the afternoon once the sun's been up for a while, now you got a chance of maybe catching a couple. And I'm going to start the day with a slower-moving bait that might be, you know, a, a minnow bait, uh, might be a glider, might be a suic, something like that. Something because I, it, I expect the water to be cooler. I don't expect the fish to be as aggressive. So I'm going to try to trigger them. But as the day progresses and it gets a little bit warmer by the afternoon when I come in, if that water temps come up a couple degrees, well, then I might be throwing a smaller bucktail trying to cover water and trying to you know trying to contact as many fish as possible so then as we move now from spring to early summer 
you just showed up on this lake now, it's early summer. What type of structure are we going to be looking at in that instance? So much depends. You know, we say early summer, it depends on water temperature. It depends, you know, because, you know, we've had early summer the last couple of years, those fish are still spawning or just done with spawning, and they're often still in the weeds. You know, I'm going to check a lot of the newly emergent weeds because often at that time of year, at least summer, you may not find a lot of weeds, but if you find some nice green weeds coming up somewhere, you might have the best spot on the lake. Again, I'm not going to be far from the spawning areas. I also will want to start checking open water, especially if they've spawned and kind of got that out of their system. And open water can yield, you know, some of the bigger fish in the, in the entire system very quickly because, you know, those females, they like to, you know, you know transmitter studies have, have shown they like to go they like to get done spawning. They like to go and take a swim around the lake, kind of check things out a little bit. And then they establish their, their home range. And quite often, especially here, the bigger fish that don't get harassed the most are out over deeper water. And I start checking that right away. And they may be only a cast or two off the structure, or they might be out in the basin. Again, that just depends on the type of spring that we've had. So without us going like completely down the open water rabbit hole, because that could be that could be a pretty much an entire episode on its own. Is there is there a certain way that you go about checking like finding out if their fish are in open water? Is it a similar is it the similar type of process where you started out where you're going to drive around look for bait? Is all open water created equal? I guess without trying to ask you 13 different questions. And then does every lake that you find have an open water bite? Okay, well. Open water has a progression, too. Early in the season, open water may be, as I said, a cast or two off of the spawning structure or off a shallow structure uh, where the fish are just holding out. They might be, they might only be five, six feet down and two casts away from the structure. And that often is the deepest water that's close to spawning, you know, spawning area or shallow feeding area. Then as the summer progresses, they may go to more conventional open water stuff, the middle of the lake type stuff, whereas previously it might just be the deepest water in the basin. And, you know, it's the same thing. The guys down in Kentucky, you know, I've been reading a lot of that lately uh, because, you know, we're working on the February-March issue of Muskie Hunter right now, and about the only muskie fishing that's going on is going to be down in the southern reservoirs. And a lot of what they do is open the water out the middle of the spawning bay because those fish are either spawning or they're moving out into the middle of the bay to feed on shad. So you you kind of have a progression where you are fishing the immediate deep water to where they spawned or where they started to feed in the shallow water stuff, that immediate basin or, or the narrow basin, small bay, deep water there. And gradually they work their way out to the deepest water in the lake. Do you feel every lake has an open water bite? Yes, everyone does. It, it's a matter of the best ones have a suspended bait fish, or the most consistent ones, I should say, have a, some type of suspended bait fish, be it Cisco slash tulabees or whitefish. But every one that I've ever fished has one at some point. It might just be a matter of perch. It might be crappies, bluegills. Those bites tend to be a little bit more inconsistent. One lake here that I fish in Vilas County is... It's like the it, it's like if your boat is in twenty four point six feet of water, you're not going to catch fish. But if you're in twenty five point two, you're good. It's like twenty five feet or more. The open water bite is within relation to a very large, prominent point in the lake, 
and there's a lot of open water in this lake and I can't put anything together elsewhere. But these fish are a couple casts, you know, three, four, five casts off of this big, large structure. And you got to be at least 25 feet of water and there's going to be perch or bluegills out there. And if there's perch and bluegills there in June, you know, middle to late end of June, there's going to be a very good suspended suspended bite where I've had, you know, six, seven fish in a day. But July and August, it's not going to happen. You know, I, there, I kind of struggle with that sort of thing. And then I start looking, you know, I'll start looking for the more, the lakes that have got the, uh, the more consistent open water bites, the ones that have got the suspended bait fish. You can have a lake that's 20 feet deep and a spot where a lot of fish are just, you know, it's not necessarily your, your, what you think of when you're fishing open water, but it, this lake might only be 20 feet deep, but you just go right down the middle of the lake sometimes. And, you know, whether you want to drift or use a trolling motor to move, just go down right down the middle of the lake and those fish don't see a lot of bait out there either. And there will be fish there. I think sometimes too, Steve, I, I'm considering this on a couple of different bodies of water that I fish. What's kind of taken place over the last, say, 10 years with, uh, with water clarity, it just cleaned up so much, you know, due to the zebra mussel or what have you. But I'm seeing a lot of these fish where they're slid out to, say, 40 feet of water. Basically, if you normally sit in 20 and you're casting up to a weed line, you can just turn around in the boat and cast straight out. And with those fish, I've been watching them transition as the evening comes around, that sun starts going down the last two hours of light, I'm watching them slide in from that 40 and kind of coming back to that weed line for like feed time, if you will. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any of that? Or is that something that I'm, I mean, I've just started putting this together the last three years. Yeah, that makes sense, Brad. You know, we don't have zebes around here. There are some lakes in Wisconsin that have them, but we don't have them in Northern or in Violet and Oneida, to my knowledge. You know, the lakes still get nice and green in late summer, you know, and, you know, pea soup green and that, a lot of them do. But we've, you know, that, that's, we've long called that wrong way of casting where, you know, you got the, you know, guys are, you know, often you'll have one or two guys casting in toward the conventional stuff that, you know, the weeds, you want to cast over the top of the weeds or the weed edge or the brake line or whatever. And another guy in the boat casting out over deep water and, you know, just the opposite direction on the other side of the boat so it's you know wrong way you're fishing off the wrong side of the boat <laughs> and but it, and that, that's been effective here for many many years i don't know if that's a matter of pressure that the fish just you know they see too many baits in shallow water and they feel like they're a little bit more comfortable out in that deeper water or what but um you know you just if you take the same bait you'd be casting over the weeds cast it back out in the wrong direction it's amazing what you catch sometimes and that's leading us to a whole nother uh point about open water fishing and that's not to fish too deep because the fish look up and they're typically not very deep and you know it's suspended so but i don't know if you want to go there with this with this segment <laughs> right no i i find it interesting you know there's always something that you start kind of putting little pieces together over a period of years and time there's no doubt that i mean what we're talking about right now is that summer period we're talking july and august i have also seen this you know in october november same kind of gig. So, you know, these transitions throughout the season kind of come full circle at different times as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they move, you know, they move, um, you know, they go and they spawn, they move out into the main lake. And then as you start getting into fall, they're going to go deep. But eventually, especially the guys in the rivers see that, you know, who are fishing rivers, that they start working their way back toward the spawning areas and they'll be in deep water near the spawning areas. So, uh, you know, like you said, it comes for a full circle. 
really does. Let's shift gears. And uh, so we went through August and now we're going to approach a new body of water in September, October timeframe. <laughs> My favorite time of year is that, uh, that free turnover bite. You know, there's, there's so many people are getting off the water at that time. They think that, okay, well, you know, maybe it's a, maybe it's a product of so many younger monkey fishermen are, you know, they got kids going back to school. The kids are in sports, uh, you know, whatever they get. You know, the hunting seasons are starting. And so a lot of people just are not on the water during the pre-turnover time. And then they, it, it's like they leave September alone. And then they start looking for, you know, they'll, they'll wait because they're going to come back and fish for muskies. They're going to do it in October when they can start dragging suckers, you know, because that's so many people, especially here in Wisconsin, musky fishing is, uh, you have to have suckers. Otherwise, you're not really musky fishing. And that September time period, you've got the biggest muskies in the lake are often in very, very shallow spots, just like they would be in June post-spawn, but now they're feeding. And you know, that I, I try to, you know, I, I typically take two weeks vacation for muskie hunter to be on destination waters during that time period because it, it is that good. And again, it's, you know, you're looking for you know, that pre-turnover bite. You know, I, I don't know if all the muskies in the lake are going to go up in the shallows, but I know the ones that are going to be fighting do. Enough guys who troll and don't fish, you know, they, they want to troll that deep water stuff. And there are a few of them around here. They struggle in September, you know, where they just don't, they just don't catch anything in September. And, and so that tells me that the fish that are shallow are the ones that are biting because I'm catching fish typically then. And now it's just a matter of going and finding cover, typically, or windblown struck. You, know, you got to have windblown rocks. You know, you got to have wind on the rocks for them to be shallow, you know, like a vermilion type thing in September. And the lakes here in Wisconsin or, you know, other lakes, you know, if you got a good weed edge, they're going to be in the thickest, greenest weeds you can possibly find, be it, you know, cabbage or coontail. And some days they'll be on cabbage today and coontail tomorrow because the cabbage is starting to break down typically. And going and finding that stuff and side imaging is very key to this, you know, going and finding that in, you know, clear water lake, 10 feet of water or less, or a darker water lake, six feet of water or less. That's how you catch them. Or that's how I catch them. That is my favorite time of year. It's just lots of big fish up shallow and they're biting. Well, I think one of the points that I could take in and, and uh, that I use, utilize, I guess, as I'm fishing is green weeds. And you hit it on the head, you know, some of these weeds are starting to die. I, even in the spring, you know, when the first we're starting to get into the first part of the season, I'm looking for the greenest of green weeds, you know, that the healthy, good stuff that's putting out oxygen. And it kind of transcends, transcends into fall the same way. As weeds start dying, some of those green weeds, like you're saying, I mean, they've become so key. And the other thing that I would maybe mention is, you know, you begin the beginning of September, we usually have our first cold fronts, maybe even in the end of August. And right. I think a lot of times those first cold fronts really shove some fish shallow as well. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why they do it outside of the fact that, you know, when you have turnover, you know, when the lakes turn over, there's a whole lot of stuff going on in deep water. You know, you, you, you know some, some of the guys here will say the lake puked. Well, you know, because you got stuff floating on the surface you'd rather not be seeing, and it came up from the bottom of the lake. And it's, you don't have that so much in, in shallow water. I don't know why that fight occurs. I've just learned in musky fishing that. So if, if you worry about why it happens, 
you're just wasting your time. You just go out there and, you know, take advantage of it. Don't worry about why it happens. Just worry about how to catch them. And those fish are going to be shallow. You know, when I, when I started fishing vermilion, you know, the first time I fished vermilion was in 1997 and it was in September and we were fishing that pre turnover bite and, you know, it was shallow rocks then too. And you had to be, you had to have wind because if you didn't have wind, then they, they did, they, they'd either follow slowly or they just lie there and you could go count them on the reefs and such and, and look at them, but they wouldn't bite. And then you get wind the next day and they bite and you catch, you know, four or six or 10, or I once had a 16 fish day on Vermilion back in the day. And, but again, it's that pre turnover thing. They go up shallow and if it's rocks, you got to have wind. And if it's, if it's weeds, they don't necessarily have to have wind. They just have to have the greenest. And that's it. Nutshell for that pattern. <laughs> Well, I, I just, I'm thinking as we're talking here, and I'm, I'm thinking about the Mille Lacs days um, when all those fish would push shallow on that first cold front, and they'd be laying on that bare sand. And, you know, Mille Lacs taught us a lot of neat things over the years. I don't know how much time you got over there, did you, Steve? Were you, did you ever make it to Mille Lacs? I never made it to Mille Lacs, and the reason why it, this may sound funny is because when you guys started fishing Mille Lacs, and guys were catching fish out of Mille Lacs, that was when vermilion was really really good because there was really big fish on a lot of the spots you know i I literally watched them grow up um you know the the top end fish in 1997 were 43 to 44 inches and every year they were two inches bigger and i never saw another boat fishing muskies i knew of other guys fishing muskies there but i personally never saw another boat fishing muskies until the 2000 season and there were 50 inches on all the spots then and they were dumped and that's why when people started to fish for a million, it was like Disneyland for muskie fishing because there were dumb 50 inches on every spot and they'd show up and they'd bite. And well, it was kind of fun watching those fish, you know, grow up. We tried to educate them best we could. And I, I hate to say it, that's probably a, a hole in my resume is I never got to Mille Lacs, but Vermilion was so good when Mille Lacs was starting. I thought, why bother? And then after that, then I started looking for the next Vermilion and, you know, I'm, kind of still looking <laughs> you know that information gets out so fast nowadays uh there were some lakes i thought were going to be the next vermilion i thought they you know, and they'd be really good for a year or two and then poof they're gone and you know i given what malax did like i said that's probably a hole in my resume because i just never got there uh, that, that makes sense i mean it's hard to fish everywhere and and you're right vermilion was super hot at that point but it, no, what, one of the things that I was thinking about as we were talking is, you know, that first cold front, fish moving shallow, and it could be on bare sand. It could be in some shallow weeds. And it, it, speed became the real ticket. They really necess- they weren't necessarily there to eat, but you could trick them into eating by just burning bucktails. And that was a unique bite. And the neat thing about it is, is I've taken that bite on many, many different lakes throughout the state of Minnesota and have duplicated it when you have those first cold fronts. And I was just curious if you see that same kind of trend over in Wisconsin bodies of water. Oh, yeah. I, I fish this pattern, I, you know, in Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota, Ontario. It happens everywhere. And it's that first cold front, we typically get it here like the third weekend of August. And I am the, you know, I'm the MC of the National Championship Muskie Open in Eagle River every August. And that's the third weekend in August, and it's amazing how often we'll have this big cold front will come through in the three or four days ahead of the tournament. And, 
it, it'll take a, a bite that was slow and very spotty, erratic, you know, for the fishermen. And all of a sudden, people are catching muskies because the water cooled five or six or eight degrees within three or four days. And that's the start of that type of that, that pattern. And that's uh, about the time I start fishing. I try, I try to get out, like I said, I take two weeks of vacation. I try to do it sometime between the end of August, that last week of August, and around October 1st. And everywhere I've fished it, this pattern, that pattern exists. It's very good. Wow, that's cool. Well, let's kind of shift into the bait side of things as we get in the end of October, beginning of November. Unfortunately, like this year, I know you guys were kind of in the same boat over there. We really didn't get a full November with the weather. It uh, it got cold on us, and and things got kind of tough. Yeah, I I don't know what's going on. You know, and, and we're not going to debate. We're not going to get into politics. We're not going to debate climate. Who's causing the climate change? But yeah, there's definitely climate change going on in some way, shape, or form. Something's going on, and whether it's natural or man-made, I don't want to debate that here, and I don't think it's the forum for it. But yeah, I mean, we're getting earlier. You know. Earlier onsets of winter, it seems, the last few years, and winter seems to hang on, and you know, maybe we're slipping into another ice age. Uh, given all the snow we've gotten this year, i got no reason to doubt it. <laughs> well, with uh, as you transcend in the, into November, Steve, are you a troller or are you a caster? And what is your normal go-to baits, and, and what are you doing you know, on a new body of water to locate fish? Well, to locate fish then, I'm going to look at the three or four, you know, late October, early November. I want to look at the three or four or five most prominent spots that are related to the basin of the lake. And I'm going to just basically live there because, I, you know, feeding windows are so short in the fall and you just want to, you don't want to be moving from one spot to another one. You should be fishing. You don't want to be taking a break, you know, and getting a, a sandwich at a, you know, lakeside restaurant or something like that. You, you know, you just you just live on those four or five spots and wait for the fish to turn on. And you know, here in Wisconsin, it's going to be suckers. It's going to be you know, you're going to be casting crankbaits. You know, maybe you know gliders that you can work deeper. Uh, uh, you know, some of the heavier, you know, the bigger suics that you can get down deep. You know, the 12 inch model. You know, the weighted, the Franken suic stuff that you can get down deep. You know, that big daddy of yours, uh, throw some weight on that to get it down deep and, and, and just try to cast shallower while you get the suckers working the, the brakes. If there's a fish up shallow, maybe you decoy them, out, decoy them out to the suckers. Otherwise, you got something to do while you're waiting for a fish to grab the sucker. <laughs> you know, that's typically, typically the way I do it. And then the, the real late thing, uh, I'm, I'm probably in a tree stand by the time you get to that point nowadays. I'm the wrong person to talk to about that nowadays. Now that's funny. I know I spend enough time in the deer stand as well. So, but there was a time when I did it right up to lice up every year. And, um, yep. you know, the big rubber is another big factor for us. Uh, obviously with the Cisco bases that we have over here, if we could get on some, uh, some lakes where there's some Cisco spawning, that definitely is a key. And, uh, there's a lot of times when you're actually hooking the Cisco's as you retrieve your bait in. Um, yep. Those big fish are going to follow, and you, I think you hit it on the head when you said bait. I mean, it doesn't matter. Bait is uh, is always a key part to it. So you, it sounds like you'd rather cast and probably run suckers. Do you ever do any crankbait trolling in the fall? Uh, I have done some. It, I, I, again, I'm not the person to talk to about it. I, I, I've trolled. I've had success at trolling, but I, I'm never going to tell anybody that I'm an expert troller. 
by by no means. So you, you're talking to the wrong guy again, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you troll, Steve. So don't don't cut yourself down that short. But that's very interesting. I, I don't know. You know, one of the things that we maybe didn't touch upon was rocks versus weeds. And like on a new body of water, if you know there's a bunch of rock piles, when would you hit those rocks versus hitting the weeds? Because we talked a lot about weeds and we talked about hard breaks and deeper water, but when do those rocks come uh, become a big factor for you, Steve? They can be a factor right from the right from the get go, really in the season. If you've got sun on them, and the weeds aren't necessarily coming up, you know, when you're hitting hitting the water before the fish have spawned or as they're spawning or when they're just done, you know, often those weeds aren't very good yet. And if you've got a rock pile in the middle of a bay, rocks along the shoreline that the sun has been on it. It can be very good right away. And, you know, with rusty crayfish, I, I think rusty crayfish and, you know, the amount of food that can be on rocks nowadays, you know, not necessarily from the crayfish, but, you know, we know muskies are eating them, but, you know, everything else is eating rusty crayfish. You know, rocks, is, rocks can be very, very good. You know, it, it, it can be, you know, a reef, throw, throw the sun on it on a cool day, and it can be very good. Um, rocks can be good you know, with wind, it, it does, you know, not, not so much, you know, the wind becomes more of a factor later in the season, but on a cool day and cool spring, you know, sun on the rocks is something you just can't overlook. Uh, later in the season, if it's a cloudy day and you got wind, well, yeah, now you want to be there. But uh, if you, if you got wind early in the season and the water's cool and, and it's cloudy, well, then at that point, I'm going to look to rock or I mean, I'm sorry, look, look for weeds, look to trees, look to shoreline, something that might have some kind of heat because the rocks probably won't have it at that point so steve the one thing i noticed throughout the course of this podcast was you talking about crankbaits casting crankbaits especially and i know that i followed you throughout the course of my musky career and it seems like a crankbait is definitely one of your top tools i would say can you talk about how you work that crankbait is it straight retrieve are you twitching it are you ripping it really hard can you talk a little bit about the technique you used when you're when you're casting crankbaits well, you, you've got to make the crankbait stand out. And just like any bait, you've got to make it stand out. And, you know, you, you make bait stand out through size, action, or color. And, you know, a crankbait with a straight retrieve, you'll catch them on that. Or you can catch them on it. But if you've got a guy who's really good at twitching, uh, ripping, changing cadence, just stopping the bait, he's going to outfish you. Unless you're in a, in a post-frontal situation. I, I've got a pattern on a couple lakes here that uh, if it's post frontal and, and I'm fishing and we're fishing open water, we're going to put on baby depth graders and just reel them in nice and slow. And it's it's amazing some of the fish that you'll catch on those baits. Just a little five inch crankbait just retrieves slowly even after dark and they're still feeding on them. It's just an, I think it's just a nice easy thing for them to eat. But it depends so much on the on the crankbait, Jeff, you know, because there are so many different different styles of crankbaits. You know, you got the middle baits with, you know, flat-sided crankbait. It's still a crankbait. A lot, you know, the smaller they are, the more I'll switch them. The bigger they are, the less I'll switch them. More, there I'll, you know, kind of rely more on, you know, a straight retrieve until I contact a rock, and then I might pause it, give it a twitch before I resume. Um, I might give it a couple rips to get it started and then get cranking. And the fish will kind of tell you what you want or, or what they want what you'll want to do but then of course you know you've got the 
the more buoyant crankbaits, which are better around weed edges. You know, you got the depth rater, you got an Ernie, the Cisco Kid, you know, something like that. And those baits, you know, you can sit there and just pick at weed edges. And, you know, Joe Booker taught me how to do that 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah it's a long time. How to pick at a weed edge, and that can be tremendously successful. Just, you know, sitting around the edge and throwing it out ahead of the boat. You can kind of feel for the weeds. You, you don't even have to have your sonar phone in that direction to know where the weeds are turning because you'll feel it with your crankbait and crank it down until you bump weed, you know, give it a little slack line, let the bait back out because it's very buoyant. If a weed clings to a hook or to the, to the uh, uh, diving lift, just give it a little twitch until it comes loose. Rarely will you have to really rip it hard to clear that weed and just kind of finesse it back to the boat. But then you've got the baits that aren't very buoyant, you know, like a triple D I've caught, oh boy, when they came out with that triple D over open water, it was like, those fish just didn't, it was like when the cowgirl came out, you were throwing <laughs> you know, throwing cowgirls up, up shallow. The fish had no clue what they were eating. They knew they wanted to eat it. And that triple D, you know, not being very buoyant, you don't want to throw it on the weeds, but around rocks, you know, around the open water or deeper water around rocks or out over, you know, to the suspended fish, out over deeper water, cast them out, give them a couple twitches to get it started, maybe get the fish's attention, and then crank it back a third or halfway, halfway back to the boat, give it a twitch pause it then resume your retrieve you know you get you watch your line and as your line goes vertical you know when it's uh, sticking out toward the lake well that bait's still out their ways but as the line starts going vertical your crankbait's coming up next to the boat well then either you stop it twitch it pause it maybe even just rip up two or three feet and that works with jake's grandma's death readers triple d's it works with all of them and then you go into your figure eight and uh you, you impart some different action that the fish don't expect and make it stand out, and you'll catch way more fish and crankbait. I think that's great advice for a lot of people out there. Because I think, in my in my opinion, I could be wrong. I think the crankbait is kind of actually overlooked with all the different options we have in the musky world these days. A lot of people think of them as trolling baits, and you know the number of fish that get caught on crankbaits it can be a lot. I mean, if, if you're really good with crankbaits, I think I'm good. I fish with guys who are exceptional. You know, Booker, Sarek. My usual fishing partner, Kevin Schmidt, is unbelievable with a minnow bait. Uh, he, he, he'll, he'll convince a fish to bite, and that fish had, you know, it'll follow in and had no, idea, had no plans whatsoever to eat, and he'll convince that it needs to eat. If somebody's really at that level of minnow bait, they're probably, it, 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 it's uncanny what they can catch. It's, it, it's, just, it's just very special uh, what they can do. And a lot of it comes from, not a lot of guys are throwing them, but B, you're putting it down into a depth zone that a fish that's not real aggressive is now seeing it. And if you kind of lip it along or, or fish it more vertically by letting it rise in between twitches, it's hanging in that fish's strike zone for so long and pretty soon they got to notice it. And then they start coming along and also it does something they didn't expect and maybe they get a little excited and they eat it. And, you know, crankbaits can do that. It, it's you know, the only other bait that I think that really can do that is, you know, if you got that special suic or a uh, really good reef hog or, uh, or, you know, if you're, you know, some of the guys who are really exceptional with, uh, with bulldogs, I mean, what they can do with bulldogs sometimes, those baits can really shine in the hands of a master. So Steve, the one thing we covered a lot of is smaller water, the stuff you'd find in Northern Wisconsin. Let's talk more about if you're going to make a trip to Lake of the Woods or somewhere big, because like you'd mentioned, if you're on Lake of the Woods, you could pretty much drive around forever and you'd never hit it all, you know, unlike the 1,000-acre to 300-acre lakes that you see in northern Wisconsin. Let's kind of, you got any 
you got any tips or tricks to start there on big water? Yeah, absolutely. Start with a map. Get the hydro the Canadian Hydrographic Service map. Don't get the fishing hotspots map. I mean, fishing hotspots makes a lot of good maps. The Lake of the Woods map is not one of them. They try to. They've got too much area into too small of a map, and it just unfortunately doesn't show the detail that you need because you're going to get in trouble. You get the Canadian Hydrographic Service map and study it. And what you want to do is look for clusters. Yeah, there's so many islands out there. There's, I don't know, 1,500 islands or whatever, 15,000 islands. I don't know what's out there. Lots of islands. I like to look for, you know, I'm not going to take a, I rarely will take a trip there early in the season unless I can kind of play it uh, by ear and see what kind of spring we've had. Because if you go up there and the water temps, it's still 55, 58 degrees and the fish are in the spawning areas. You're going to be there for a long week. You're going to catch some fish, but you're going to work for every one that you get. But if you have an early spring and the ice goes out early, you can get up there and um, and do some damage as those big fish are first showing up on the main lake structure. And so what I do, if I say if I was to go up in June, the end of the season when, or I'm sorry, the end of uh, June when, when musky season's first opening, I'm going to look for the spawning bays and then look for islands and shorelines that are close to the spawning bays and try to find areas that have got lots of really good looking stuff, you know, lots of spawning bays, protected areas, and then look to those islands. If they got a cluster of islands out in front of a spawning bay, guaranteed there will be muskies using those either going in or coming out. And of course, probably coming out at that time when the season first opens, because it's the third Saturday in June when it opens. In July, then it depends again on the type of year. If, if it's the middle of July and I'm going to Lake of the Woods and it's been an early spring, well, I'm going to look to those transition areas outside the spawning bays again because those fish will probably still be there. But if it's been nice and warm and it's summer, you know, summer has hit Canada, well, then I'm going to look for bigger water and I'm going to look for clusters, clusters of islands where you're coming out of that bigger water and then go fish them. And I'm also going to look for sandy bays. You know, if most islands on Lake of the Woods have got Cupsters. You know, you call them cups because they have a little guard point and they kind of cup in toward the shoreline and they come out with another guard point on the other side. And some may have weeds in the back. Some have got, most of them got sand. Almost all of them got sand. Some have just got rocks. And I'll look for those. And then it's a matter of once you get there, just kind of fishing some of that stuff and trying to figure out what the fish are working. If they're in the bays, you fish the bays. If they're fishing, if they're on the if the active fish are on the, on the island shorelines, you fish the island shorelines and, and, and then kind of take it from there. One of the things that I would say and suggest, you know, especially like a body of water like Lake of the Woods, it's a special body. But, you know, you could look each here in, in Minnesota. You could look at Eagle Lake in Ontario. I mean, there's a, a ton of different body of water, even say Vermilion. You know, Vermilion's got an east and a west and they fish differently. One thing that I would suggest to people is break it down into a small area, meaning don't think that you got to go two miles to the next spot. Um, it might become two miles to the next spot once you've learned it over a period of years, but break down that body of water. Maybe you're staying at an island resort or wherever you might be staying. Look at that and say, okay, I'm going to fish this area today. And you don't need to travel and travel and travel. You know, the neat thing about Lake of the Woods or some of these other bodies of water, the fishing opportunity it's right around the corner. Almost every one of those little bays that you were talking about, 
you know, and one thing that I look for up there is if I see sand, a lot of times there's going to be weeds in that same bay where there is sand on that shoreline. So that's another key as well. But definitely rocks are a big factor on on those big shield lakes, that's for sure. Yeah, that's a good point, Brad. And that's one thing that I've really concentrated on the last few years is that, you know, if I'm finding fish in an area, you know, as you said, you don't go run. Don't go run to your next spot. If there's fish in an area, chances are if you turn around and look for an island that looks just like what you're fishing right now, or a shoreline or a sand cup that looks exactly what you're it looks exactly like what you're fishing right now, you can go there and there will be fish there. And in doing so, I'm learning so many spots the last few years, you know, probably the last five, six years I've been concentrating on this. You know, and, and I think a lot of this just kind of came from the pressure that Lake of the Woods sees. You know, it does get pressure, even though it is Canada and it's a giant body of water. You know, all the spots that are, you know, community spots or you know, are, are well known, they're going to get hit many times during the course of the day. And I'll look for spots that are close to them, but nobody's fishing them. And often I'm finding fish there. And, and if I'm finding fish there, I'll just turn around, I'll stand up, I'll let that fish go, I'll stand up and look around and, all right, where's a spot that looks just like this? And I'll go there and there's fish there. It's remarkable. I'd hate to be a tulip in that lake. I'd, you know, you'd be looking over your shoulder constantly. But yeah, that's how I break that lake down. And I'm learning so much more about that lake the last few years just by keeping my eyes open. Well, it's remarkable even on the smaller bodies of water. And I think it goes twofold with the big bodies of water. If a spot is getting beat up and beat up and beat up, and it's actually a really good spot, these guys are pushing these fish and they might only move 30 yards around a corner or say uh, 50 yards down from the spot, the spot on the spot. You know, those fish are only going to put up with so much pressure, but that doesn't mean that they leave the county. It might mean that they just move 30 to 50 yards away from that exact spot that you think is a spot on the spot. Yeah. And one of the best things to do is if you got those good electronics, like we were talking about earlier, as far as, you know, mapping a lake and such. Well, if you got a nice breadcrumb trail of waypoints leading you back to the resort, is you know, if there's a spot that there are boats that are constantly, well, if there's boats that are constantly, it's telling you that there's fish that are using that spot. And you just kind of wait till it gets to be dark and you move out there and move in on that spot. And I like to, you know, a lot of the spots that are really good, you know, especially if it's a reef or whatever, I'll have. I'll have them, you know, encircled with waypoints so I can come back in low light conditions and just, you know, go from waypoint to waypoint around the reef. And I'm in the money zone the whole time. And often those fish will bite at first dark. The fish that people were moving all day long will bite at first dark. And those good electronics can really help in that situation. Yeah, it's interesting. I, if you talk to like Ty Sennett, who basically is using his side imaging and he's just literally driving by those bays watching the side imaging. Nope, there's not a muskie here. Goes to the next bay. Oh, there's two fish here. Maybe we'll swing back around. We'll fish them, you know, and electronics can become a major factor in this whole thing of, of success. That's for sure. Yeah. It, it's, as I said about side imaging many times, if it's there, it can't hide. The side imaging is that good. And, you know, the, the gen three stuff and high depth, it's unbelievable. Just unbelievable. I don't know how we always end up back there, but it, it, it's definitely changed the game of fishing. Yeah. Yep. I think that's because Brad's getting paid on the side from Hummingbird. That's how we always end up there, Brad. Well, I, wish I, I wish I had a check from Hummingbird. That'd be nice. But now, you know, the neat thing is, is I don't get a check, but uh, the neat thing is, is that 
when when certain things happen in this fishing industry that are really relevant, such as side imaging and hummingbird, I don't know. You know, it, what, what what more can you say? You want to talk about it because it's important. And I think, uh, you know, is it a necessity? Do you need it to have success in your boat? No. But at the end of the day, why not put every key thing that you can into your boat and into your equipment to be more successful on the water? It just makes it that yeah. much more joyful. Well, you think about it, you know, so many guys have got a lot of money tied up in, you know, in, their, in their boat, motor, and trailer. And then St. Croix sells a lot of $500 rods, and Shimano sells a lot of $400 reels, and Musky Mayhem Tackle sells a lot of $25 bucktails. And if you, you know, if you try to chance on electronics, uh, you, you just, you're costing yourself fish. It's, it's, you know, Brad, I, I, I imagine you probably got started. You probably had a flash or, you know, you're, you're sold. You probably had a green box, but anyway, um, <laughs> I still have a green box actually, Steve, <laughs> really? and, it still, and it still works. <laughs> A lot of my early boats were rigged with flashers, and we caught fish then. But now it's it, it, it's remarkable what side imaging can do for you. Yeah, it, it's totally amazing. I mean, it's a huge game changer, and you know, and you could throw it out to pan optics as well. Um, I'm hearing a lot of rave about that as well. But um, you know, to me, it's it's like for the hunters out there. If you think of it this way, you buy a $800 rifle, and then you put a $150 scope on it. You know what I mean? You kind of touched yeah. on that. You have you spend all this money on a on a boat and a motor, and then you put uh, you know whatever that screen might be in your boat. All of these advances in technology with electronics, it's only going to benefit the angler. So I wonder where it's going to go. I've always, I've often said that it's going to be like having a television there, and you know the panoptics that you mentioned is almost to that point now. I, you know, Garmin, what they've come out with is going, you know, it's going to make Hummingbird and Laurent, you know, step up a little bit more, you know, come up with their version of it at some point. And, you know, competition makes people better. And, you know, when, when you're talking Hummingbird, making them better, that's going to take a lot of work. But uh, if they come out with, if, if Hummingbird can come up with something like Panoptics, I can just imagine what that's going to be. It's going to be really, really good. I'm going to guess you'd buy one right away, Steve. Uh, I'd probably have it on my new boat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know the feeling. It's pretty crazy. I've tried to, to stay away from purchasing stuff like that, but, man, once you see it in somebody else's rig, you pretty much just say, well, i got to bite the bullet here, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's amazing. It truly is. All right, Steve, we really want to uh, thank you for coming out and spending some time with us. I know everybody's got a busy schedule, so we can't thank you enough for taking time out of yours to come be on our podcast and help some people break down some new water. If people are looking to get more information about any of the various projects you have going on, whether it be University of ESOX or the Nicolay Muskie College Seminar, how do they go about that? And you want to talk a little bit about any of those two things? Okay, sure. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. I, I sure appreciate being on. I, I hope I gave something, give people something to listen to here. Uh, otherwise, they might be entertained by the rantings of a madman. But if they want to see what I do, if they want to attend a musky school or whatever, they can go to steveheiting.com. It's S-T-E-V-E-H-E-I-T-I-N-G.com. You'll find the information for the uh, University of ESOX there, uh, my books. Then, then you know, Nicolay College and Rhinelander will have its third annual. Uh, we're calling it annual now, uh, third annual Muskie seminar. 
and that's going to be in in uh, April this you know in twenty twenty, and you know we haven't yet announced it, but we've got it. You know we're getting it rigged up and ready to go, and Nicolay's enthused about it, and we've had a great attendance. You know the last couple of years, and so I'm looking forward to it too. It's just a lot of fun. It's uh, time of year when winter seems to be hanging on forever and uh hey we can talk about open water fishing and and uh talk about summer and everybody gets jazzed up and it's a fun fun time but thanks for having me on guys yeah thank you very much for coming out brad you want a quick talk about muskie mayhem tackle you bet thanks again steve uh it was very informative and we appreciate your time so muskie mayhem tackle it's brad and carrie hoppy from muskie mayhem and you can reach us at muskiemayhemtackle.com or you can reach us both in Instagram and Facebook through Muskie Mayhem Tackle. So appreciate it. And uh, why don't you go do the rest of yours there, Jeff, and we'll, we'll call it an evening. If you guys want to check out Backlash Podcast, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, as well as you can download the podcast and listen to it on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Overcast, and Podbean. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at backlashpodcast at gmail.com. Both Brad, Carrie, and I are involved in many things. So if you don't hear back from us instantly on the email, don't worry. We will eventually get back to you. It's just not our main priority. But we didn't we didn't forget about you. If there's ever a guest you guys want to see, certainly, you know, send us an email there too. And then if you guys want to get some custom colored lures or some stock colored lures, we have a whole selection of stuff online check out team rhino outdoors on team outdoors.com and you can also find team round team rhino outdoors on facebook youtube and instagram we also occasionally will tweet but that's pretty rare uh, i think that pretty much wraps up this episode of backlash podcast we thank everybody for listening and we certainly thank steve for coming out and spending some of his valuable time trying to give everybody a little bit of knowledge on hopefully catch a few more more muskies which i would assume is going to be next season for most of us thanks again steve thanks brad if carrie's still there thank you carrie for keeping brad company and you guys all have a good night good night Jeff. thanks good so night, much yeah, take care guys yeah, bye-bye